The Student Voting Network podcast is produced by students at a national level. This podcast does not reflect the views of any organizations associated with the Student Voting Network. There's a lot of voting news going on in Pennsylvania lately. Nicholas Bartell, the president of the Washington and Jefferson College Student Voting Coalition, and I worked over the last three months to develop a sub-series relating to the current voting landscape in Pennsylvania. This will be part one of a five-part series about the state of voting in the state of Pennsylvania. In this episode, we argue in defense of Pennsylvania's Act 77 and speak to several students about their experiences educating and informing student voters on campus. Nick, I think Act 77 is one of the primary components that people in the national space who are looking at Pennsylvania often refer to. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's definitely one of the more pivotal acts for Pennsylvania from creating uh, no excuse mail-in voting as before with absentee uh, voting, you actually have to provide a reason with Act 77 basically said, okay, if you don't have a reason, you just think it works better for you to um, have that ballot mailed to you. So you have that time to look up who's on the ballot, look up the ballot questions, that's okay. And also does a, did a lot of other great things such as uh, providing $90 million to reimburse counties for improving and replacing their voting systems to be um, a lot more secure. So I definitely think, yeah, I would have to agree that Act 77 was a very pivotal thing in voting rights in Pennsylvania. I find it really interesting how it sort of gets this false description that it is some type of like election stealing legislation or that it is in some way encouraging election fraud. And I know that there's been a lot of fraudulent audits that have either been supposed or actually kicked off, especially in the state of Arizona. But I wonder, like more broadly with this specific act, I wonder if people really know that it actually increased turnout, it actually secured the election in such a way where people had written ballots as opposed to what other states use a completely electronic voting system you know it was largely supported in 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 some ways in a bipartisan way do you recall how the vote totals went when the actual um act was passed in the state senate yeah so it actually was passed by a majority of republicans um, in both the state house and state senate there was in the state house um of the 138 people who voted in favor, 105 of them were, were Republicans. And then in the state Senate, it was 29 Republicans and a singular Democrat, uh, as opposed to 20 Democrats in the state Senate who actually voted against it. So, I mean, while it's typically kind of now heralded by Democrats as being this very progressive piece of legislation, it's actually really interesting about why Democrats didn't actually vote for it. I mean, there was things such as Representative Sarah Inamorato from Allegheny County uh, said that she voted no uh, because she felt it was too rushed. And there was a lot more details and a lot more debate needed to actually solidify 
the kind of what the interpretation of this legislation and the impact of it was going to be um, because whenever you have multiple interpretations of a piece of legislation that comes and leads to a bunch of court cases and others i mean <laughs> i mean another kind of part of it was um, i mean a lot of democrats felt that it was giving up too much it was trading away the uh, removal of straight ticket voting and that's the, that trade ticket voting is primarily used in minority, um, heavy, and low income areas uh, within Pennsylvania. Uh, so it just was kind of more of horse trading. Uh, it just felt to a lot of Democrats that they weren't giving, they were giving too much in order to receive very little. It's funny to me because what that indicates to me is that there's a subset of legislators in the Democratic Party who. <laughs> they approve of increased access to the ballot. However, if that increased access to the ballot disallows people from straight ticket voting, like I wanna meet that representative, right? Who has that really niche belief. Yeah, I wanna expand the vote. Yes, I want to make sure that people can submit no excuse mail-in ballots, but straight ticket voting, you've gone too far. Like that seems to me like a really interesting, I don't know, tree to tie your horse to. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also just the, I mean, I know typically on these type of podcast, we, uh, there's more of a democratic general view, or at least ideas that are more supported by the Democratic Party. However, I think this is one of the spots where the Democrats are completely to blame for criticism on this. I mean, I understand it's easy, but at the end of the day, you should be voting on like the person, not necessarily the party. And I think this was just a move by the Democrats to kind of uh, help to promote their own victories later on in the elections. I mean, it's not, I wouldn't say necessarily it's akin to gerrymandering, but it is something that the Democrats were definitely using to kind of help promote their uh, electoral victories, uh, even though that typically people who were doing the mail-in voting uh, were primarily Democratic voters as opposed to Republican voters. So they're basically trying to get everything and not being able to kind of give something up, which is a right. little, little bit more political shadiness, <laughs> right, <laughs> a little bit more right. shadiness than I, I personally would like in our system. No, that's, that's funny because, you know, you indicate that many Democrats ended up utilizing mail-in balloting in 2020, but you and I both know that at least historically, Republicans utilize mail-in voting way more. And it was only due to the onset of the pandemic, which is why we saw that switch. But more to the point about the, the straight ticket voting, which I just kind of want to hone in on for a second here. I mean, I'm looking at a city like Philadelphia, for example, which is where I am located. And I see very like largely when I'm looking at the voting trends in Philadelphia, there's not a risk of a Republican Party resurgence in Philadelphia anytime soon. And so I, I find it really interesting that there's this idea that we have to protect the Democratic Party line vote in Philly when it's like one of the Republicans on city council got voted out and was replaced by a working families party person. Like that's how anti-conservative the city is. So I just think it's really interesting that a lot of Democrats were really critical of this legislation because they felt that it may in some way hamper voter turnout. You know, Philly, I think it saw just about average levels, maybe a little bit higher levels of turnout in 
2020. I don't have the numbers in front of me. So if you're listening and you think that I'm wrong, please send a correction email to us. But generally speaking, I just find that it's sort of a falsehood to suggest that the voter turnout is going to be suppressed by eliminating straight ticket voting. And I think that any time that we can eliminate extreme partisanship in, in any way, um, to your point, it reduces political shadiness. So I really, I think the Democrats not being into Act 77 initially, but then being able to circle back and say, hey, here's what Governor Democratic Governor Tom Wolf signed into law, check this out. I think that really illustrates what bipartisanship can do when it comes to increasing access to the ballot. Yeah, I mean, just like looking at there was like 4.2 million ballots cast um, on November 3rd uh, in 2020. And of them, absentee and mail-in ballots accounted for 2.6 million of them. Like, that's just crazy. Like More than half of all um, ballots cast this year or in the past year were mail-in and absentee. And that was like just to kind of give the whole entire look of okay, what was the voter turnout? Because that's right. not, I know that's something that we typically look at. It was over seventy five percent. It was that seventy six point five percent turnout in Pennsylvania, and that's this is coming from the Pennsylvania Department of State's like official website for the official turnout. It just it's crazy to me that we're typically trying to uh, hit that 60 percent mark, but this time more than three out of every four registered uh, voters in Pennsylvania turned out to vote. For sure. And and what I find really interesting about that is the more people who come out to vote, the more criticism the law seems to have gotten. And, you know, we've heard so many people from across the country um, in other states in particular really criticize Pennsylvania in terms of Act 77 and the way that it expanded the franchise and a lot of concerns that I think were kind of artificially induced perhaps by, by a lot of the commentary about it, but certainly there were people from all over the country who were criticizing it. It is partisan, it is political, and it is lawless. And, and, and we're seeing this pattern in Democratic city after Democratic city, but the worst in the country right now is Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where they're, they're not allowing the election observers in, despite clear state law that requires election observers. The law is called Act 77, Mike, and you're right. The basic facts are that the Pennsylvania Constitution has never permitted universal mail-in balloting. This is why Pennsylvania did not follow its own constitution. This is why we need scrutiny on those kind of irregularities, and that's why we need election reform going forward. Yeah, I mean, so we just heard a bunch of very prominent Republicans kind of talking about kind of criticizing the uh, Act 77 and how it was like kind of targeting our and like kind of uh defrauding the election i mean i kind of want actually to turn to um republican senator pat toomey uh one of pennsylvania's two senators um who actually mentioned uh during the certification on uh january 6th he said um in reference to act 77 uh, this law was not challenged when it was passed it was not challenged when it was applied during the june primary election it was only challenged after president trump lost the general election so if a Republican, a very prominent Republican from Pennsylvania is admitting on the Senate floor that Act 77 was not controversial until it hurt the Republicans, it just kind of speaks to me how not just the Democrats, but also the Republicans are willing to 
kind of demonize a piece of legislation whenever it hurts them as opposed to promoting <laughs> democracy. Uh, it's fair weather politics, one might yeah. say. Yeah, and it's like so people funny. it's like people trying to like fans of <laughs> of the Pittsburgh Pirates. You're if they're good, then you're going to see a bunch of people from Pittsburgh <laughs> flood out. But 9 times out of 10, you're not going to you're going to probably have at least a good road to yourself um, in PNC Park. Like it's <laughs> But yeah, it's just kind of ridiculous to me uh, that like, we're turning partisan politics kind of against democracy. Certainly, certainly. And I think this criticism of the local Republican legislation by national Republicans, I think that in, in some ways I find that a little refreshing, though. And, and what I mean by that is what, what that really means, and I think this could be more broadly applied to both parties, is the national view does not necessarily dictate what is happening on the local level. And that's really important for devotees to democracy who, who don't necessarily have to follow the party line in Washington, D.C., but they can actually initiate legislation that really benefits people in their local communities. I mean, certainly Pennsylvania is, is quite rural in some places. And the ability to have a mail-in ballot works really well for rural communities because there are, you know, post offices that overwhelmingly benefit rural areas as opposed to urban areas in particular. And I do think that, you know, when you see, (laughs) if you'll pardon the term of phrase, you see a lot of city slickers telling people, you know, in uh, the country how to vote, how to run an election, there is a lot of concern there. And I think that local elections is kind of an um, oxymoron because every election is local. It is administered, it is staffed, everything happens at the local level. And you're not getting people flown in from the party apparatus on K Street to come in and you know administer the elections. So I just think that you know when we're looking at this criticism of the legislation that was in some ways bipartisan, you know, signed in, into law by a Democratic governor. What that says about the legislation itself is that it's good to ruffle some feathers with good legislation. We don't often see that in uh, America lately. Yeah, because it definitely seems like it's either it's a very partisan lean. I mean, going anything from kind of like with HR one or other pieces of legislation, it's very partisan. Of it's basically whoever has more members within. that kind of chamber as opposed to what actually represents their uh, constituents the best. And kind of to your point about how the national and state Republicans were actually kind of at odds with each other, uh, the Republican Pennsylvania State House Speaker uh, Brian Cutler said about Act 77, quote, this bill was not written to benefit one party or the other or any one candidate or single election. And this was actually by uh, supported by the um, one of the more powerful state Republicans, uh, this state Senate uh, pro temp. Uh, Jack Corman, who said compromise has given Pennsylvanians a modernized election code that preserves the integrity of the ballot box and makes it easier for voters to choose the people who represent them. So you have two prominent Republicans within the state legislature that are coming out publicly before 2020, before kind of all of this kind of partisan rhetoric turns against Act 77, coming out and saying, this is a fair, this is a compromise, this like this piece of legislation is good for the Commonwealth. And then we see, I mean, then we see like after the election that 
there was a joint uh, House and Senate Republican release kind of criticizing Act 77. And like, but the thing is, though, the weird thing is, if you look on the Pennsylvania uh, Republicans website underneath the 2019-2020 Senate Legislative Accomplishments, it cites Act 77 as one of their accomplishments. So <laughs> they have publicly both, they hate it and they like it. <laughs> Which just Love that it, binary. It, Normally I don't like binary yeah. systems, but that's, it, it's funny because uh, there's this yeah. claim that mail-in voting is going to lead to voter corruption. Well, if Act 77 led to voter corruption, why are they standing it so hard? So that really yeah. kind of gets at the, at your point. And I think that like, mail-in voting and voting in general, yes, voter fraud does occur, but the level to which it occurs per capita is so infinitesimally low. It is such a low percentage um, that this idea that, for example, I'm, I'm going to you know, kind of dunk on Arizona again, this idea that they're bringing in bamboo ballots from China and that these bamboo ballots, which is a, is a racist trope, to be clear, these bamboo ballots from China are being processed in the Maricopa County Board of Election Center. I mean, it's so outrageous. And this idea that there is similar mail-in voting fraud that exists in um, claims of this that exist in Pennsylvania. I'm thinking about what they what they refer to the red mirage, which is this idea that you know the people who are going to show up in person to vote were going to be overwhelmingly Republicans, but we were told for months, if not a year, in the lead up to this election, that the ballots that were mailed in could not be counted until election day, which is another huge issue that's when the vote started turning. And I just remember seeing prominent national figures saying, stop counting the ballots. And it's like, why? They're, they're valid. There's nothing wrong with these ballots. There's no voter corruption that's occurring because there are bipartisan boards of elections who are certifying these votes. And I just, I find that argument to be, I guess, in a sense, dangerous. Because what it really is doing is they're trying then to take Act 77, which is bipartisan and well-established and, and beloved by Pennsylvanians, and then trying to cast it in a light to say, well, it's also a foot in the door for voter fraud. And I, I'm just wondering, Nick, what your thoughts are on this mail-in voting leading to voter corruption. Like you mentioned, there are some cases of this of voter fraud happening from mail-in balloting. Um, and for example, I think one more prominent one, uh, there is a Cal uh, California city councilman and five other people are currently facing federal charges of election fraud uh, using the councilman's home to register to send in illegal votes in a vote-by-mail runoff where the councilman actually won by a singular vote. Now, yes, I admit this happened. Yeah, that clearly happened, no doubts about it. The thing that I'm kind of taking from it is, while it does prove it can happen, it also shows that we have the institutions in place to catch it. Right. Um, right. And there was also something else that happened over the past, like over the election cycle, was a lot of information was being sent out, such as like uh, states were sending out ballots to people without people actually asking for them. Like <laughs> even outside the fact that you don't, you actually have to register for a mail-in ballot or absentee ballot in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, I, there are some states that basically will unanimously send them out. However, whatever you register to vote, that means that you're actually requesting a ballot. 
Right. It doesn't matter necessarily what method, but you are physically requesting a ballot. So it's impossible to solicit something that you've already requested. Right. <laughs> and like the uh, Department of Homeland Security has come out and said that the November 3rd election was the most secure in American history. And there are things such – something actually kind of amusing was on Fox News. There was a um, there was a pundit who was talking about how there was a bunch of like corruption and wouldn't it be a great idea if we installed barcodes on these ballots to make sure that we know kind of what these like mail-in ballots are so we can scan them and whatever – the thing is, they actually currently exist. There's not only ballot uh, barcodes on some of the ballots that themselves, but also on the envelopes as well. So you, in Pennsylvania, you can actually track the process and the progress of your ballot from the time it leaves your house to the time that it's counted. That's really funny. When when somebody imagines something that already exists, it's like last night I was imagining a really good space opera where a lone fighter pilot blew up an artificial moon. But then I woke up this morning and I found that star Wars exists. Like really what it does is it, it also shows to a certain degree how, even though the legislation has existed for almost two years now, nobody has stopped to look at it, stopped to read it. They're just taking talking points about it and, and, and perverting them. And, and that kind of gets into what is being, I, I guess, colloquially referred to as the big lie, which is this idea that all aspects of the election were rigged. It was fraudulent. There, you know, there is still a shadow government somewhere, you know, where Donald Trump is still president or Joe Biden did not win the election. And that also, I think, is materially dangerous to conversations about this election because it's sort of uh, been a given in American democracy that we can agree on truth and fact. And not to get too philosophical here, but if there are two truths, then there are no facts. And I think that the groundwork for the big lie, you know, I was, I was mentioning earlier about the um, red mirage, right? This idea where we all knew that on the day of the election, Republicans were going to overwhelmingly show up to vote in person, whereas Democrats were overwhelmingly going to use the mail-in ballot option. We all knew it. It was discussed. We all said in the lead up, <laughs> hey, it's going to look like, uh, you know, the Republicans had a really strong turnout. and The Democrats had a really weak turnout, but we're going to start counting the ballots at night or that afternoon. And slowly but surely, as those vote totals are ticking on up, that's when you start seeing a lot of squirming in Republican circles. And it has really set up a place for continued contesting of the election and, and sort of this pipe fever dream where we are going to be able to reject the results in some type of fraudulent audit, you know? Even looking at kind of what some of these claims are within the big lie that like the election was stolen because it's not possible that Trump didn't win. Like, if you look at just that argument that Democrats rigged the election so that ballots were against Trump. Okay, let's break that down. Okay, so you're saying that they're able to break down and change one office on a ballot. And that you have to do that across the country with multiple different systems, multiple everything. But they're not contesting their own elections. Okay, so if I'm a Republican senator 
and I just got voted in, that would bring up the question of, is my own existence here as a politician, is that legitimate? Because if you're going to start bringing up the, oh, it's a big lie, like this is completely corrupt. It was created by like Dominion and all these, like you'd have to think, wouldn't that kind of speak more on themselves as well? And what is their legitimacy of being in office if Biden doesn't have legitimacy? Because Republicans, I mean, over the course of like his term, started to move more and more away from kind of being in that Trump camp. Because, I mean, yeah, there, of course, there was arguments of, okay, well, he's not a politician. He's going to mix things up. He's promising to drain the swamp. Oh, he's a very successful businessman. And that's why a lot of Republicans voted for him uh, in the 2016 elections. But as you see kind of him kind of alienating and ostracizing Republicans that don't fit within his brand, then you start to see Republicans voting for other people, for like they're libertarians voting for Democrats. So it just kind of is interesting to me that it was all Democrats who were voting like fraudulently. It wasn't the Republicans that voted against Trump. They're not at fault. It's only the Democrats. Do you love talking to other students about voting? Maybe you're new to the space and don't know where to get started. Perhaps you're the only person in your network who is regularly hosting voter drives. Not to worry, the Student Voting Network wants to support you. Join us for our monthly calls on the third Wednesday of every month at 8 p.m. Eastern for the 2021 to 2022 academic year. The Student Voting Network wants to hear your voice. Visit bit.ly slash SBN Slack. Again, that's lowercase bit.ly slash SBN Slack and sign up today. Affiliate advertisements and links to other sites where goods or services are advertised are definitely endorsements insofar as we are telling you, the listener, to check them out. How could we not be advertising things if we're plugging them directly into our podcast? The Student Voter Network takes no responsibility for the content of the ads, promises made, communist revolutions, felony disenfranchisement, or any other manifestation of revolutionary political ideologies that affect the student vote. If that occurs, please discontinue use. So obviously, you know, the, the groundwork for the big lie, the, there's a lot of controversy within this space of voting in Pennsylvania. But more broadly, I wanted to talk about Kathy Bachvar and some kind of everybody suing Kathy Bachvar. What can you tell us about the actual court cases that started getting kicked off as a result of things relating to Act 77 and beyond? Yeah, you're right. Uh, it's basically everyone and their mother versus Bachfar. Uh, just looking at the number of cases she was involved in during the 2020 election cycle, you have everything from Commonwealth Court to su- the Pennsylvania's courts to the Supreme Court there to the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, the, but the first one, at least of major consequence, was the uh, Pennsylvania Democratic Party versus Bachfar. Now, this was in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court just kind of break down for our listeners about how kind of our judicial system works in Pennsylvania. We have our superior and we have our Commonwealth courts. And those are kind of like your more like lower level courts that uh, at least within the Pennsylvania level, you're gonna have your trial courts and whatever, but this is kind of like your intermediary level. Then you have the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And 
you can have some cases that, um, go from Pennsylvania or state Supreme Court up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which we're actually going to see a little bit later on. Uh, so this one is kind of at the highest court in Pennsylvania with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. This is in uh, mid-September is when this court case is decided. What kind of was going on then is the Pennsylvania Democratic Party and 16 other organizations and plaintiffs sued former Pennsylvania Secretary of State Kathy Bachfar and all 67 county election boards to improve ballot collection measures. So what the plaintiffs were arguing were they were arguing to have more accessible and secure drop boxes and collection sites. They also wanted to extend the deadline for receiving ballots to 5 p.m. on the 10th of November. The significance of the 10th of November, it's not just they were like went up to a calendar and randomly picked the 10th. That's actually the deadline for the federal uniformed and overseas citizens. So essentially, if you are living in another country, and but you still want to vote, you have a little bit later deadline for your ballot to actually be counted. So this has a legal precedent in the past. They also wanted to require election boards to allow voters to correct mistakes on their ballots that would otherwise disqualify them. They also wanted to prevent ballots not in the secret, uh, like the secrecy envelope from being invalidated. For those of you who don't vote in Pennsylvania, what we have actually have to put our ballot into an envelope inside of another envelope before we send it off. The reason, original reason behind it is, or at least the reason I was provided whenever I was a poll worker was a lot of these were actually counted by the poll workers at these precincts. And so just to kind of randomize them, so you don't necessarily know whose ballot is whose, that's why we have that secrecy envelope, because the outer envelope had like the names and the addresses of the voter. So this is just kind of promote, or at least the original idea was to promote voter kind of anonymity. They're also arguing that to have a declaration from the state Supreme Court that the residency requirement of people who lived in the county being the only ones who could actually poll watch did not violate the first or 14th amendments of the U.S. Constitution, nor the equal protection and free and equal clauses of the Pennsylvania Constitution. Now, after all that was kind of brought before the court, the court eventually ruled that drop boxes were allowed as a space to drop off ballots, since you can drop um, off ballots in other locations like mailboxes, which have just the same amount of security as these drop boxes did. They also allowed for the deadline for receiving ballots to be extended by three days as per uh, Secretary Bachfar's counterproposal, rather than the original sought one week after the election as asked for by them. They also said that election boards did not have to allow for ballot corrections, also that the ballots must be included inside the secrecy envelope to be counted, and also declared that the poll watcher residency requirement was in line with the Constitution. So there was some wins and some losses for uh, the Democratic Party, but uh, it did bring up this idea of the secrecy envelope. Yes, yeah, certainly. Right. And, yeah. and I, I know that there are also aspects of the secrecy envelope, which I don't know, it's hard for me to necessarily have an issue with the secrecy envelope as well. I feel like anonymizing, I think that's the word, anonymizing, making anonymous <laughs> the ballots that are actually being counted. It's really useful. It does, I think, give people some peace of mind that they're not necessarily going to be targeted or or in some way ostracized for voting how their conscience has told them to. 
that addition of the secrecy envelope also adds another element to the election process, which can be difficult to educate voters on. And I think that Pennsylvania did a pretty good job with detailing what needed to be done. I I seem to recall there being commercials saying, you know, cover your ballot, you know, no naked ballot, I think they were calling it, and doing a lot of really clever, witty things, um, advertisements to get people indoctrinated into the utilization of the secrecy envelope. So I think that it was, generally speaking, a success. I I don't think that the rejection rate for ballots got above three or four percent, which is, you know, bodes well for any election in general. The, The less ballots that are being rejected due to impropriety, the better. Another thing to also consider about these naked ballots is the idea that we don't technically need people to be counting them. Because we see like in elementary school, middle school, and high school, we have scantrons that can kind of punch through numerous tests in like five, 10 minutes max. If it's exactly the same as a scantron, at least in format, you'd think in theory that you could just have a machine be able to at least do all of the kind of the bubbled in votes as opposed to like, you know, of course you would need people for like all of the writing candidates, but at least for the bubbled in votes, I think you could probably turn a little bit more to machines. I'm, so I'm can, pretty sure really yeah. quick that machines counting votes is how the matrix ended up happening. I just want to throw that <laughs> out there. Yeah. I mean, I know there was definitely, there would definitely be a lot more concern if the human element is taken out of it, but there is also something to be said that the human element can bring in human error of the just losing track or you have, I mean, you can't really have machines that have a political bias or the poor eyesight or just like being unable, like making a basic mistake. Like machines are engineered to do one or two or three tasks and those tasks only. Unfortunately for Bokfar, her court woes did not end there (laughs) because a little bit later, after the following month, President Trump and his re-election uh, campaign actually sued her in the U.S. District Court of uh, Western Pennsylvania. And this was decided October 10th from uh, Judge uh, Rajan. And he was actually, the, the interesting thing about uh, Judge Rajan was he actually was appointed by Trump in 2019 uh, as a judge with unanimous rep- uh, Republican support in the Senate and a 27-14 split from Democrats in favor of his appointment. And just kind of doing a little bit of a bio on him, he's served as a counsel on the law firm of K&L Gates in Pittsburgh, working on pro bono cases um, for civil rights uh, for prisoners. His law firm also uh, represented Chevron, and he's written several articles such as the Supreme Court of Ohio rejects local government's attempts to regulate oil and gas activities in 2015. He's wrote an article about uh, reverse gender discrimination a year after um, Doe v. Uh, Columbia University and kind of talking about that. So what he ruled on this was the, what kind of the case uh, originally was. It brought up three main questions. The first question was, are drop boxes unconstitutional due to a lack of security guards to maintain them? The second one was, is the Pennsylvania restrictions on poll watchers having to be residents from that county unconstitutional? And the third is Secretary Bachvar's guidance to election county boards to not reject mail-in ballots where the voter signature does not match the one on file unconstitutional. So let's break down those questions and see what he actually uh, kind of ruled on each of them. 
he mentioned for Dropboxes that they, quote, assume potential fraudsters may attempt to commit election fraud through use of drop boxes or forged ballots or due to potential shortage of poll workers. The relevant question here is, are they certainly impending? Based on the evidence presented, the answer to that is no. That is the legal standard that the plaintiffs must meet. In the Supreme Court case, actually, Clapper versus Amnesty International USA it found that the court, quote, cannot endorse standing theories that rest on speculation about the decision of independent actors. Essentially, all of this is saying all of the stuff that the Trump lawyers are arguing were based upon hypotheticals, and the court can't necessarily rule on that. The next one, uh, talking about no matching signatures, is the exact same thing. The only evidence presented were hypotheticals and didn't actually have any actionable examples of this. And then for the last one with poll watchers is once again, they're unable to find evidence that they were that the Republicans were unable to find enough poll watchers in any of the counties because of this requirement. But even then, hypothetically speaking, let's say it was true, not having a poll watcher doesn't impede the accessibility to vote by a Pennsylvania voter. So on all of these points, he rules against the uh, Trump lawyers and the Trump team and kind of goes in favor of Bokfar. I've always been sort of critical of the comparison of signatures that are on file, given that forensic document analysts have to undergo like a decade of training before they can ever even end up in court to, you know, verify something. So I personally find that aspect of the argument to be pretty disingenuous. I think regardless of what state you're in, you know, people's signature changes as they get older people's signature changes from the beginning to the end of the year, whether or not you have eaten a meal or are properly hydrated can impact your signature. So I, I know that there is a lot of science behind signatures. And I do think that having some, you know, frankly, some faceless bureaucrat somewhere saying, nope, uh, he didn't dot his eyes, so he can't, you know, we're going to reject that ballot. I think that really sets a slippery slope for rejection of a, well, widespread rejection of ballots based off of um, one person or, or two person or maybe a small panel's seemingly arbitrary decision. Yeah, I mean, even as a former poll worker, we were processing, I mean, you have upwards of 100, 150 people within a couple of hours. So you're seeing people come in left and right, and you're trying to match kind of, okay, does their signature match the one that it's on file. And sometimes, like you were mentioning, people are just trying to get on their way to work. So they might scribble their signature a lot faster and might not be as neat as whenever you are set to register, where you will actually deliberately take time to make sure it looks nice. The idea of signature matching being kind of a method of kind of ensuring that you are who you say you are, uh, like you mentioned, just seems like a ridiculous thing. Like, there's so many ways either to fabricate it, to copy someone's signature. I mean, I know like elementary school students are, I've remembered some several of my friends telling me stories about how when they were uh, in elementary school, they would fabricate their parents' signature on like a detention slip or something. And the teacher bought it. And that teacher easily could have been a poll worker. So like you have these type of things where it's not that hard to fabricate or right. at least fabricate right. to a believable standard. So even if it did count, like even if your signature is perfect every time, 
Because I mean, you even have the Republican Party suing Bakfar just a week before the election. Uh, on October 28th is when the Supreme Court ruled. Um, and this is kind of going off that same idea of um, the idea that uh, there was kind of this impropriety within the uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court's ruling. And the Supreme Court basically said, we don't have enough time to rule on it. <laughs> uh, just taking a look at kind of um, the conservative justices and their dissent on a prior motion for the Honest Elections Project, uh, which is far different than the Campus Vote Project, just, just for our listeners. It's completely <laughs> different. They rejected a motion to file an amicus brief on February 22nd, 2021. So this case is still ongoing expressing in kind of in these their sense they kind of express their kind of stances on these cases so just take a look kind of at more of the conservative side of the bench with justice alito and gorsuch writing that the pennsylvania supreme court decision quote arose from an extraordinary and unprecedented confluence of these circumstances but then critiqued the decision saying that it sets a precedent that pa courts can overrule any law on the conduct of federal elections under the free and equal elections uh, state constitutional clause, uh, that there is a legal requirement of the change of repetition doesn't necessarily have to have that high level of specificity. So you could say, oh, this might happen again in the future, but you don't necessarily have to be right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's also very highly speculative, at least according to the, in, in this dissent, to assume that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court will not find conditions materially similar to what happened in November 2020 in federal elections as in future elections. Now, keep in mind, we're still underneath a global pandemic, and next November, we're set to have midterms. So we might likely still be underneath these same kind of material conditions. So I, there is definitely worry that the Pennsylvania, or at least from these more conservative justices on the bench, that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, uh, if they were to rule in favor of them, would find that as precedent to kind of further expand. It just seems kind of, I mean, all of these kind of make very logical sense. But the the question I think we kind of need to answer is, did the Pennsylvania Supreme Court make the right call? Is bulldozing one of the fundamental principles of American democracy, refusing to commit to the peaceful transfer of power? Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. The president amplifying his crusade to cast doubt on the election's integrity, ramping up his claims that an expected surge in mail-in voting will lead to widespread fraud, though there's no evidence that's true. Tonight, with the White House insisting the president would accept the results of a free and fair election, President Trump suggested the vote may be tainted. Are the election results only legitimate if you win? So uh, we have to be very careful with the ballots. The ballots, that's a whole big scam. Now to the other major breaking news tonight. President Trump announcing Attorney General William Barr has resigned effective next week after Barr contradicted his claim as a voter fraud. Lester, it's unusual an attorney general would leave this close to the end of an administration, but it is not altogether unexpected. The president has been fuming for weeks, according to sources familiar with this thinking, after Barr publicly said he has not seen widespread voter fraud so far. People close to Barr say for his part he was considering departing by the end of the year, even before.
We just heard about how politicians and courts were reacting prior to the election. We're going to have two of our democracy fellows, Franny and Lily, talk a little bit more about their experiences. So, Lily, would you like to start us off with telling our listeners a little bit about you? Yeah. Hi there. My name is Lily Fournier. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am a democracy fellow with Franny Richardson at Swarthmore College. Um, and we both do together, we do the social media for an on-campus student-led voting group at Swarthmore. Yeah, basically just what Lily said. Um, I'm also a member of the Get Out the Vote Committee, which is a committee comprised of students and faculty and staff. And all of this we kind of do in combination with our work as democracy fellows for Campus Vote Project. So before we dive in uh, a little bit more with both of you, kind of talk a little bit more about what the world was like uh, back then, kind of how things were leading up and how things were influencing our election um, that we saw in 2020. So this actually kind of going back until August, on August 17th in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, Trump said, quote, the only way we're going to lose this election is if the election is rigged. This kind of created uh, one of the more blatant examples uh, leading up to the election of doubt being cast on the validity of the election. And while this is not necessarily the official start of this, uh, the disinformation campaign about um, the election generally, these ideas increased in popularity um, among conservative media outlets with uh, things such as Fox and Friends uh, having a screen tagline of Democrat operative amidst mail-in voter fraud while interviewing a reporter who broke this story on the New York Post. With the anonymous tips are saying there's going to be an effing war coming November 3rd over this stuff. If they knew how the sausage was made, they could fix it. So this story was kind of foreshadowing the both the January 6th insurrection with this call of action coming after a corrupt election and that it was up to uh, them, the American public, to fix. This was kind of further perpetuated by Fox News uh, with uh, the article name, Trump calls mail-in voting a scam, says Democrats are setting up election mess. So historically, the American president has been the face of the government and held the trust of the American people as one of the most powerful people in the country. So whenever the president says there was some type of fraud in the election system, it's easy to believe that he had some type of like inside information that the general public was aware of. And then kind of moving a little bit on, kind of bringing it back to Pennsylvania, um, in late September, Fox News reported that there was a Pennsylvania official who dumped military ballots. This was in regards to a story about nine discarded mail-in ballots uh, from Luzerne County that uh, with seven of them were actually uh, found to be votes for Trump with two being resealed. And this, these types of stories promoted the idea that the Democratic-held departments of state around the country were trying to influence the election. We also had a uh, court case with Donald Trump versus uh, Kathy uh, Bachfar, who is who is currently the Secretary of State for Pennsylvania. Uh, Trump sued over the unconstitutionality of mail-in ballot drop boxes being unprotected, county election boards being instructed to not reject mail-in ballots where the signatures did not match the voter file, and restriction on poll watchers um, being having to be from that county to which they are assigned. The court ruled uh, against Trump, saying that the theoretical harm of, quote, vote dilution of voter fraud with drop boxes uh, was, uh, did not meet the legal standard of, quote, currently in, um, impeding and was uh, dismissed. But the first two claims that I mentioned, uh, the court ruled were, uh, federally constitu- uh, were federally 
uh, were a federal issue and would not rule on the state constitutional claims and defer judgment to the state courts. Keep in mind, all around this time in mid-October, this is the beginning of the third wave, with the United States breaking um, 8 million cases on the 16th, uh, and Pennsylvania on the 23rd uh, reporting a new high of uh, over 2,000 cases of COVID in a single day. So we also see that um, kind of something we'll be going a little bit more into uh, towards the uh, next part of our uh, episode is with the, uh, with the idea of mail-in ballots, with the Republican Party suing the state of Pennsylvania uh, over the idea that uh, of like mail-in and absentee ballots received after the election. So the court recognized, this is uh, the Supreme Court, uh, recognized but not did not rule on the decision from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that the mail-in and absentee ballots must be received after 8 p.m. Uh, and before 5 p.m. on November 6th. Uh, so those kind of those two ballots were segregated from those received before November 3rd. The court further that while the uh, PA Supreme Court might have violated the Constitution, there simply was not enough time to adequately render a um, an opinion. So these kind of ideas were building throughout the country. So on election day, American voters had uh, four major themes play out. The first one was that there was widespread uh, disinformation, uh, creating concerns about election cons- uh, security, and that, quote, true patriots uh, needed to rise to arms to protect their country from corrupt elections, setting up the stage for the January 6th insurrection of the Capitol building. The country began to enter the third wave as COVID uh, broke national records leading up to election day with vaccine rollouts not starting until the new year and um, alongside protests surrounding uh, mask mandates and stay-at-home orders and Republicans in the Trump campaign repeatedly suing the Pennsylvania Department of State um, on various grounds of election corruption. All the while, Pennsylvania voters had to deal with new voter regulation and rules on these court cases. And so with that, I'm actually going to turn it over to both Lily and Franny to talk a little bit more about um, like the idea of naked ballots and how their campuses responded to these various new rules. Thank you. Um, so as you touched on, and for folks who aren't familiar, the naked ballot, no naked ballot rule came from that Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision um, and basically outlined that voters who are voting by mail need to obviously fill out their ballot and then the ballot needed to be inserted into what was called a secrecy envelope and then the secrecy envelope was inserted into the regular standard mailing envelope and obviously for folks doing voter outreach that was a little nerve-wracking because it's an easy thing to mess up we don't normally mail things into ballots. Yeah, so because Lily and I work specifically on social media and communicating with our students, we like very much thought it was our responsibility to try and make sure all of the students at Swarthmore, or as many as we could reach, knew about this slight change in voting law. So we set about like trying to figure out the most effective ways to do that. And Lily can touch on this because she did a lot of the creation of these things, but we started making informational videos and infographics, and we post them on our Instagram and our Facebook accounts to reach students. Yeah, I think that the videos that we produced and put up were a great way to reach students, especially because Swarthmore, at least, has a ton of students coming from different backgrounds. So 
out-of-state students, and then because of COVID, out-of-state students who are staying at home but voting in Pennsylvania, out-of-state students who are staying at home but voting in their own state, in-state students who are on campus and vote on campus, in-state students who are at home and vote at home or at home but vote on campus. Like There were just a ton of different paths that Swarthmore voters come to elections. And so we created and produced short, like 30 to one minute long animated videos highlighting kind of different paths that different students might take because everyone's voter path was unique and people were voting in different ways. So how do you vote if you're in one of those situations? And then how do you vote if you're in a different situation coming from a different point of view? And one other thing we did, we know how important it is to form relationships with other organizations on our campus, um, other groups that have sort of channels with the students at large. So one thing we also did um, was the Get Out the Vote Committee that I'm part of. We partnered with student government and the student government sent out emails to the entire student body um, outlining the new changes in the voting law. Um, and kind of like laying out step by step the process that they need to that students would need to follow um, in order to successfully return their completed ballot. And then the last piece that specific voter outreach piece that I would highlight um, is our office hours that we hosted. Um, and this was led by other people within our student voting organization. Our group hosted regular office hours over Zoom for on-campus students, off-campus students, other members of the Swarthmore community to come on and chat with someone who knew the voting process if they had questions or concerns or were just confused trying to navigate a pretty complicated process. It's very important kind of what both of your work that you were doing. A question that I had was, did you see any like voter disinformation on your campus? And if so, how did you respond to that? Yeah, I wasn't on campus last year, so I was not as familiar. And maybe Franny saw something. I will say from my perspective, um, I did not see a lot of voter disinformation um, making its way to Swarthmore students. I wasn't watching everything as closely, so I might have been too far away. Yeah, I completely agree with Lily. I was on campus and I did not see a lot of disinformation at all, much more so the problem was a lack of information, um, a lack of knowledge about the change in the rules, a lack of, we have a sort of bizarre thing on Swarthmore's campus where not everyone, and this is also the case at larger schools as well, but not everyone who goes to Swarthmore votes in the same, at the same polling place. You know, it's, our campus is separated into two different polling locations. Um, and so if people, if students are registered their freshman year at one dorm, they might have to re-register at a second dorm if they're voting a couple years later, if they've moved to another part of campus. So it was things like that that are just like slightly more complicated than you, than someone who doesn't know a lot about voting might expect. That's the type of information where we're trying to, we're trying to fill in the gaps more so than like combat disinformation, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. So can you talk a little bit more about kind of the relationships you had with not just um, the student coalitions that you're mentioning, but also how you kind of worked with the administration and faculty as well? Yeah. So as Franny mentioned, she is on our Get Out the Vote committee, which is a committee comprised of students, faculty, and admin partners. And so she 
within our student voting group, she is one of our point people for that connection with faculty. And we were able to meet, organize events in a large, with a larger coalition, as Franny mentioned, including with our student government, which is also student-led, obviously, but has a different level of power than regular student clubs. They make a lot of decisions for the student body and they communicate with a much wider audience. Yeah. And just as Lily just touched on, like the, it's great to have these connections to other groups that have different areas of influence, different amounts of sort of like power, if you will, on our campus. The administrative partners that are in the Get Out the Vote committee, they have, you know, access to lots of contact information that we as SWAT Votes, our student group, don't have. They also have funding that we do not have. They can fund extra sort of fellowships or partnerships. They can get out money to to make posters and to do all sorts of things that we might not necessarily be able to do as a student group. So yeah, it's, it's really important, we think, to strengthen those partnerships going forward. And then I would just add specifically in the fall of 2020 leading up to that election, it was also really helpful to have a wider list of contacts of people on campus because a lot of the people in our group were off campus. Obviously, Franny was on campus and a few other people, but a lot of people were also away. And so having people on the ground who could actually do things on campus made a big difference because obviously we didn't want it to become that Franny and the handful of other folks who were on campus were trying to to do the work of the entire organization because we were all at home and couldn't come to Pennsylvania. Like that kind of working together across not just student organizations, but also with kind of institutionalizing the idea that voting is important is definitely something that um, there's an organization for our listeners called uh, Voter Friendly Campus. And it's a designation that any campus can achieve. Uh, Swarthmore is actually one of them. If your college would be interested in the future, you have until January 31st of 2022 to apply to join the Voter uh, Friendly Campus designation. Uh, If you want more information, feel free to check out voterfriendlycampus.org if you would are interested in joining. And so with that, I'm going to turn actually things over to our producer, Ben Nixon, if he has anything else to add before we close out this section. I think one of the most important aspects of this conversation is really about getting information that is specific to a college campus to the students who are attending those campuses. I think the identification of a lack of information um, that was identified by Lily and Franny earlier in the conversation is something that we see more widely than what we see with disinformation. It's a lack of information that students are often combating against. And voter-friendly campuses across the country can definitely do everything in their power to try and eliminate that lack of information. So definitely, as uh, Nicholas said, I just want to retweet that idea. If your college is not a voter-friendly campus, we would encourage you to actually begin the process of initiating becoming a voter-friendly campus. It's a really important way to reduce um, lack of information among students across the country. To get involved with the Student Voting Network podcast, just email us at svncast at campusvoteproject.org. One more time, that's svncast at campusvoteproject.org. 
Thanks for listening and keep organizing.